Matthew 3.13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Monageras, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they came not even, that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty out of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brethren? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Blessed be the word of God. You were not a demon. Your healing of sins was not evil. And your connection to spirit was not psychosis. Jesus, why don't you just stop doing this thing where you let people say whatever they want and tell demons not to reveal your identity and bring people into your circle where, you're, where you know they're going to betray you? Why do I feel like fighting the battle you already won? and karate chopping the next person I hear that's affiliating you with darkness. Only light, only good, only love, only perfect peace would keep such a posture of grace. 
I can't help but believe that your humility serves as affirmation of how divine you are. I'd stretch back to the uh, uh, mid-90s. That is the theme song from the ABC hit show Family Matters. Family Matters chronicled the travails of the Winslow family and their suburban life. In later seasons, uh, we got to see uh, more of Laura Winslow and her budding relationship uh, with uh, Steve Urkel. Um, Steve Urkel was one of those guys that gave uh, every teenager hope. <laughs> <clears throat> Family Matters reminded us every week that uh, families are crazy. That uh, the, the, the family system as it's emerged in our culture is simply so wrought with dysfunction as to be comical. Amen. <laughs> and yet those families create somehow the potential for people to be formed into all they could possibly become. Uh, Steve Urkel could become Stefan Urkel. I didn't write this stuff, okay? <laughs> but somehow, somehow family matters. And the issue is not whether you live in suburban America in the age of Clinton or in Mosul, Iraq in 2014. Family matters. Our gospel text this morning, as we continue to walk through Mark's understanding of who Jesus is and what his message uh, is to us and his mission for us, our text this morning is a mashup, not to be defined, not to be confused with Midrash. It's a mashup of two families. It's the mashup of Jesus' biological family, the family he came from and the family he is creating. The formation of the family that Jesus is creating, what we've come to call the 12 disciples, is the first story in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. 
There is a curious logic to the formation of this family, different than any other rabbinical circle that had uh, known its way into uh, first century Judaism. You see, Jesus called disciples. That was not the norm. The norm was for young men, and they were all men, for young men uh, to plead with the rabbi of their choice to take them on. To go to the rabbi that they wanted to study with, if they felt a call to study Torah, to go to that rabbi and to plead with them, to, to, to prove their desire to prove that they would be serious students, to prove their worth as potential disciples before they would be taken on in an apprenticeship. The rabbis were sought out. But what we read in Mark chapter 3 is a very different approach. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Jesus invited people to be his disciples. That was not the rabbinical way. What Jesus was doing was countercultural, and it defied every instinct in the Jewish community. Now, why does he do this? Is it just because Jesus is... I don't know, contrarian and a curmudgeon and just wants to do things differently? Is, is, is Jesus Gary West? I, 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 I don't know. Uh, just let that one soak in for a minute. But what he does here is he turns the paradigm on its head. Discipleship isn't about becoming good enough to follow Jesus. It's about saying yes to his invitation. We, we've created in the Western church, and, and we who are the spiritual forebearers of the great renewal movements of the last 500 years, the, the Anabaptist movement and the the pietist movement, and the holiness movement, and the evangelical movement. We, brethren in Christ, we, we know a thing or two about discipleship. We've, we've, got our, we've got this discipleship thing down pretty cold. And, and we sometimes struggle with the notion that maybe you ought to be good enough before you start saying you follow Jesus. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not how Jesus chose his disciples. He didn't, he didn't wait for them to beg. Oh, Jesus, please let us be your, your student. He welcomes them. He invites them. He calls them. He brings them into his circle. And then... He gives them purpose. Now the average rabbinical student, the average uh, follower of a first century Jewish rabbi, 
basically had two jobs. Study Torah and beg for alms to support the study of Torah. Sort of like modern graduate students. <laughs> As some of you are already finding out, I'm sure. But Jesus invests authority with these disciples. Now, again, make the connection here. He doesn't wait till they're smart enough. He doesn't wait till they pass the class. He doesn't wait till they get the merit badge. From day one, the call of discipleship comes with a missionary challenge. And there are three parts to it in verses 14 and 15. The first part of the mission is to just be present with Jesus. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. They might be with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of too much harder in my life than to just slow down and be with Jesus. Now, if Jesus has an agenda, and, and we want to strategize together, I'm all over that. Let's go for it. Let's get something done. But the first call of a disciple isn't to master Torah. It isn't to master the text. It's to be with Jesus. Just be with him. That had to drive other rabbis nutty because that's just not how things worked in those days. But that being with Jesus led then to preaching. Be with them and that he might send them out to preach. To proclaim God's victory news. The gospel. Jesus was <laughs> inviting his disciples to become co-conspirators in the treasonous act of saying, Caesar has got nothing. The good news is God's good news. And so being with Jesus, proclaiming God's victory, and giving them authority to drive out demons to confront evil, to take on the personal and systemic evils of their day and speak into it and to speak against it and to act in ways that overcome the evil in the world. That's Jesus' invitation from day one. It's not something that we would find ourselves yearning to do until we got proper training. It's a little bit like, I don't know, putting, uh, putting somebody in the cockpit of a jet fighter and inviting them to take off an aircraft carrier. It's a little scary, this thing that Jesus is doing when you think about it. Because he's saying, I will be with you. You are not alone doing these things. You're not by yourself. We're in this together. 
And so we read of this roster of 12 that Jesus appoints. Not a particularly auspicious group. Simon, who he gave the name Peter to, and we miss the irony of that in the English. The nickname he gave was Rock. It wasn't it wasn't a, a kind nickname. It wasn't, oh, Peter, you are, you are so stable. It was, Peter, you're thick-headed. You're a hard-headed dolt. And you're the guy I name first. It just goes downhill from here. <laughs> Two brothers that their nickname is Sons of Thunder. Because all they can do is groan and gripe about stuff and somehow do it loudly. There's a tax collector. There are zealots and assassins in this group. This is a diverse group, politically. <laughs> and this is not a group of people who would normally get together except maybe to kill each other. There were business competitors, Simon and Andrew, James and John, who were in this circle. They had fought each other for the hard-won catch of the day in the Sea of Galilee for years. And now they find themselves working together with those guys? Do you know their business ethics over there? With the guy who extorted them every day, Matthew sitting in his little tax collector booth saying, good job, I'll take 90% of that. With two guys who carried around little knives in their cloaks so that they could shank their enemies in a crowd and walk away. These were not nice people Jesus had invited to be his disciples. This was scandalous. These were 12 knuckleheads. This was not the best and the brightest of the class of, I don't know, 30. <laughs> this was, these were 12 troublemakers. And Jesus invites them to be with him and to proclaim God's victory, God's victory in the midst of a Roman occupation and to cast out evil in their midst. Well, let's just say that uh, such activity on Jesus' part caught the attention of his extended family. And they were, shall we say, clearly concerned. Now, having come to faith in and spent most of my adult life in Mennonite church circles, concern is one of those loaded words. <laughs> when I have concern for somebody 
It's not good news for them. (laughs) I'm concerned about something. It means, oh boy, red alert. Trouble here. And Jesus' family was concerned about Jesus. Uh, Apparently, he was drawing such crowds that they couldn't even get a chance to eat. Now, that's got to get a Jewish mother's attention (laughs) somehow. His family heard about this, and, and, and they went to take charge of him, the text says, for they said he is out of his mind. Jesus, you're not eating. You're running around with very unsavory people, fishermen who stink, tax collectors who are crooked, assassins, and, you know, these other guys, you know, Philip and Bartholomew, and, you know, who are these people? So they're asking the question, is is Jesus really okay? Is he really right in his head? Well, this, of course, gets the attention of the religious leaders in the community who don't particularly like Jesus very much to begin with. And they go, of course Jesus is out of his mind. Look, he's clearly he's got a demon. He's clearly got problems. You really ought to do something about him. You really ought to put him away very quietly. And so Jesus calls them out in verse 21. And he speaks to them in parables. Satan can drive out Satan? I don't think so. The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. Words that Abraham Lincoln used to describe the American condition in the 1860s. Jesus ends up by telling this parable and then with his household coming to collect him and him saying, no, 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 that's, that, that's not my mother and brothers. My, my mother and brother are these folks who have come to hear and do the will of God. Jesus redefines family. Family in the Jesus way is no longer just a biological reality. It is covenant. It is the capacity to share in God's mission, in presence and in proclamation and in power. That becomes family in the Jesus way. So Jesus is redefining the essence of discipleship and what it means to be a faithful people. See, rabbis only took on good Jewish guys into their stable of of students. Jesus had taken on a guy named Philip. Now again, we don't catch the irony of that, but Philip is a Greek name. That is not a Hebrew name. So if Philip was Jewish, he certainly had Gentile blood flowing through his veins. No self-respecting rabbi would have taken on anybody with Gentile blood. It's just not good biology. It's about keeping the ethnic group together. It's about keeping 
keeping us safe from the big bad world. And so here's Jesus completely redefining what family is like. The Jesus family is not centered on temple or synagogue, we discover. It's a family on the way. It's it's not a settled group, but it's on a journey. Mark 3 doesn't take place in synagogue or in Jerusalem. It takes place on a mountainside and in a house. The places where Jesus was comfortable proclaiming God's victory news. The Jesus family is not tied to the pronouncements of religious leaders. Jesus is about creating a, dare I say it, a culture of conversation, a family of conversation. Folks who are listening to each other and to him and responding in that community. Rabbinical training was the rabbi declaring over and over and over again what the text said. And your job as a student was to memorize that. That was not Jesus' way. He spoke in parables. He told stories. He invited his followers to think and to wrestle and to dialogue and to have conversation. The Jesus family gathers around mission, not around the rabbi, but around the rabbi's mission to do the will of God. To be present. To proclaim good news. To confront evil. To drive out the demons of personal failure and hurt. And to drive out the systemic demons of race and violence. And the Jesus family is held together we read in this text, by ties deeper than any created in biology. Again, in the West, we've gotten this backwards over the years. We, we think what, what Jesus is trying to do is help us create good biological families. Family matters. You know, the Winslow family, perfect parable of the church, Right? A biological family in the Gospel is a sign of what God is up to. It's a means, not an ends. Paul would say in Galatians that in Christ there is no male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. All of the biologically determined identity markers of his day didn't matter. Gender, ethnicity, class are not important in the Jesus family. Is it possible, is it possible that in our day, that there is no white or black, no landed or homeless, no gay or straight, 
because biology is idolatry. The minute we decide that our identity is shaped solely by our biology, we enter into the realm of idolatry. The minute we say, that's just who I am, it's all determined. I have no control. I have no way of dealing with this. It's just, it is what it is. The minute we surrender ourselves to that, we commit idolatry. We place above God's capacity to transform the biology that we've inherited. And every time we do that, we invite ourselves to a diminished community and failure at God's mission. God's work calls us to move past those biological identity markers that we've set up and to say the only thing that matters is God's grace flowing through us into the world. Now, that's not to say that there are behaviors that God calls us to and behaviors that God doesn't call us to. That's not my point. My point is when we say, I'm determined, I am only going to be one way because of my biology, we limit God. And limiting God is, by definition, the act of idolatry. Because we have made something else above God. The Jesus family is held together by ties that are deeper than biology. By the ties of God's mission. By the ties of a commitment to conversation with each other. By the ties of being on journey with each other. The Jesus family is not dependent on biology. And so it challenges us to a radical redefinition of what it means to be family. So this morning, some questions asked in the presence of Steve Urkel. And if this were five or ten years ago, I might try to ask them in his voice, but I'm not really, I don't think I can sustain that. <laughs> um, so how are we as a congregation working at being a family in the midst of our growing diversity? Eight years ago tomorrow, I began as pastor here. Now, I'd had the benefit of a year and a half of consulting with you, so it was a, it was a soft beginning. But we've been together now almost a decade in this journey. And I've seen a lot of change. There are faces here that weren't here eight years ago. There are faces that used to be here eight years ago that aren't here now. We are a more diverse congregation in every way imaginable. Theologically, politically, racially, ethnically, age-wise, what, whatever sociological measurement you want to 
apply to Madison Street Church 2014, there's more of it here than there was on September 1st, 2006. That's really cool. I'm personally very gratified by that. But how are we doing at working out being family together in that? How easy is it still for us to look around and say, who is that? What, 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 are, the, what are they doing here? Now, now, folks, I mean, on a good Sunday, there are only about 75 of us here, so it's possible to get to know everybody's names, okay? So we should be working pretty aggressively to abandon that practice of, now, now who is that? And what are they doing here? We should be knowing each other's stories. Because we're on a journey together. We've been called to a common mission together. We are, we are God's missionary family in this place. We should get to know each other in our diversity and to celebrate it. So how are we as a family doing it listening to each other's voices? How are we doing it listening to the voices within the congregation, within our neighborhood, within our city? How are we doing it listening? How are we doing it hearing God speak to us through the place He's called us to be? Yeah. How much are we centered as a family on fulfilling God's missional call? At being with Jesus, at preaching God's victory news, at confronting evil. We are all called to that mission. Preaching is not the sole purview of your pastor. We are all called to be proclaimers of God's victory. Some of us get called to stand up front and pontificate week in and week out. And some of us get called to proclaim it in other places, in workplaces and in classrooms and in households and with friends. And evil still is all around us. All we have to do is read the press enterprise on a weekly basis and see the places where personal evil has punctured the lives of individuals and systemic evil continues to try to seize us by the throat and choke the life out of us. How are we doing at confronting that? How are we centered on fulfilling God's mission? And how are we at letting the various strands of biology that we have interfere with the ties that truly bind? See, the only thing that really binds us together is that Jesus went up to the mountaintop 
and he invited us to be with him. And that's good enough. No other measurement matters except we've been invited by Jesus. The Christianese shorthand for all of this is found in the cross. The, the symbol of Christ's death, but also the sign we travel under. The sign that shapes our conversations. The sign that guides our expression of God's mission. And so using that sign of the cross, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following in his classic Life Together. The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plumbs its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows that when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the universality of our sinfulness that is, ironically, the key to entry into the boundless family Jesus is creating. We can't be participants in God's mission. We can't be participants in a culture of conversation. We can't be on the journey together with Christ until we are able to recognize our brokenness and that there is no biology that makes that better. There is only our admission of our brokenness. There is only our ability to say that without Christ, I am nothing. And that all Christ does is invites us to come be with Him.